0: Hello, I'm Daryl Brugink, Executive Editor at No-Till Farmer, and welcome to the latest edition of our 2018 No-Till Farmer podcast series. Our program today features Gabe Brown, a veteran no-tiller and the owner of Brown's Ranch in Bismarck, North Dakota. This podcast episode, Using Regenerative Agriculture to Revive Your No-Till System, is brought to you by Yetter Manufacturing Company. I encourage you to subscribe to this series currently available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about upcoming episodes when they're released. If you have another app you use for listening to podcasts, let us know and we'll make an effort to get it listed there as well. I'd like to take a moment to thank Yetter Manufacturing Company for sponsoring today's episode. With a tradition of providing farmer solutions since 1930, Yetter Manufacturing Company is your answer for tools and equipment to face today's production agriculture demands. From many different designs of planter attachments for the different planting conditions you face, to several options of equipment for placing fertilizer, and products to meet harvest time challenges, Yetter delivers the return on investment and in tools to meet your equipment needs and maximize inputs. Find solutions to your challenges today at yetterco.com, that's Y-E-T-T-E-R-C-O dot If anybody epitomizes the word sustainability, it might be Gabe Brown. Switching to no-till in the mid-1990s, Brown endured several years of crop failures due to hail and drought, but it may have been the best thing to happen to him. He quickly saw positive changes occurring to his soil as a result of the residue breaking down from those failed crops. Today, Gabe, his son Paul, and wife Shelly, manage 5,000 acres, including 1,000 acres of cropland and 4,000 acres of perennial grazing land. With 400 to 800 head of beef cattle, 150 ewes, pasture dogs, honey, vegetables, fruit trees, and crops like corn, oats, hairy vetch peas, triticale, spring wheat, sunflowers, and also cover crops, Brown Ranch is the picture of regenerative agriculture. Let's join up with Gabe Brown as he describes his no-till journey and the events that influenced him to develop a management system that positively impacted soil biology and allowed nature to help his farm thrive.
1: We have predominantly Williams loam soil. We do have some fields that are a bit sandier more of a sandy loam, but we were, are blessed with, with pretty good soil types. Uh, the topography's rolling. We get 10 to 11 inches of rainfall a year, and then we'll get another probably 4 to 5 inches of moisture from the snow we get during the winter. So I'd say we're in a 15 to 16-inch total moisture environment. We've been well below that the last two years. That's making for some interesting years, and we're really seeing the difference in management so one of the things we've been able to do on our operation is we've been 100% zero-till since 1994, started to diversify the, the uh, cash crops back then, and then got into the cover crops, and then started integrating livestock. And we were able to take our soil organic matter levels on our fields. When we started in 91, when my wife and I purchased this place from our parents, organic matter levels were one7 to 1.9% on cropland. Now, historically speaking, soil scientists tell us that in this area should have probably been in the 7 to 8% range. So, in other words, we had lost 75-plus percent of the carbon in the soils just due to management. Now, we've been able to bring that back and to, to advance the health of our soils where our cropland fields now are from 53 three to 7.9%. So that's a significant improvement. And then... I was fortunate back in 1991 that NRCS came and did some infiltration tests on our land, and they found that that same cropland could only infiltrate a half of an inch of rainfall per hour. And now I had a team of scientists here in the fall of 2015, and they actually have it on video where we were infiltrating one inch of rainfall in nine seconds, and the second inch in 16 seconds, so 2 inches in 25 seconds. Now, I'm not going to say we can do that over all our land, but the fact of the matter is, any rain drop that falls on our land, we're going to be able to infiltrate. And then, due to organic matter levels in the soil, we're going to be able to hold that moisture there. And we really saw the difference here this past year during the growing season from spring thaw up until freeze-up in the fall we only had five point eight inches of moisture of rainfall on this ranch. But in saying that we it's did the drought affect us? It affected us in the sense that we didn't have as much forage production, but we still were able to run the same numbers of livestock, we still combine cash crops, uh, we did not yield as the cash crops as high as normal years, but we were still, you know, very profitable. And I think that goes to show that The biggest thing producers can do to mitigate these changes in temperature and moisture and droughts, et cetera, is through management. It's all about management. I've got neighbors that virtually fed hay for 11 months last year. And we fed hay less than 60 days last year, you know, during the winter. And I think that shows, did we get more rainfall than them? No, it's all management that's doing this. Well, it's
2: been nearly 10 years, I know, since No-Till Farmer contributing editor Martha Mintz wrote about your No-Till operation, and I know the one thing that impressed me about was your perseverance with No-Till. You know, tell me about what the farm was like, you know, back in 91. What would have been the typical crops? What would have been your, your practices, your tillage practices? And, then, and take me through the, the struggles kind of you went through that transition because you had some really major weather challenges, I remember, early on uh, when you tried to make that switch.
1: My father-in-law, who farmed this land for 35 years, I always say he practiced recreational tillage. He just loved to till. Uh, half the cropland was summer followed each year, you know, chisel plow and dist, and then half of it was, was cash grains and always spring wheat, oats, barley, so cool season grasses. That's what he grew for 35 years. Well, when we took it over then, 1993, I bought a no-till drill because I was trying to save moisture and time. That was two things I needed. So we sold all our tillage equipment, went 100% no-till, and then that first year, 1994, our first year of no-tilling, we started planting some field peas to get legumes into the rotation, You know, it just boggles my mind. Above every acre of land, there's approximately 32,000 tons of atmospheric nitrogen. Why any farmer would write a check for nitrogen is beyond me. I mean, all I got to do is put legumes in the rotation and do a good job with legumes and cover crops and they'll have more than enough nitrogen. So we started to diversify the rotation. We started in 1995. We added some corn to the rotation. We added rye and hairy vetch. But in 1995, we lost 100% of our crop to hail. 1996 came along. We lost 100% to hail again. I started to plant more fall biennials, rye and vetch, started seeding some cropland back to perennials just because The bank wasn't going to loan me money anymore for operating, so I had to figure out how am I going to make these soils productive and raise a profitable crop without all the inputs. 1997 came along, we dried out, we never combined an acre. 1998 came along, we lost 80% to hail. And I tell people that was really hard to go through, but it was absolutely the best thing that could have happened to me and my family because it forced me to learn how soil ecosystems function. And what we found out over the past 20 years, it's absolutely amazing uh, how resilient the soil is if we focus on those five principles of a healthy soil ecosystem. And we've brought our soils to the point now we, we haven't used any fungicides or pesticides or seed treatment since before the turn of the century, with the exception of seed treatment on corn, and we discontinued that in 2010 and we haven't used any synthetic fertilizer since 2007, and yet our yields continue to go up, and people say, well, how is that possible? You're going to deplete the soil. Well, one of the things I've been very involved with the last 10 years, Dr. Rick Haney from Temple, Texas, who developed the Haney soil test, has been using our operation as one of the baselines, and so he does testing every year, and he found that the levels of available nutrients in our soil have actually continued to increase every year. And we did some really good uh, demonstration comparison between my operation and three others. And those three others, one was a tillage operation that very, very diverse system, uses cover crops, but no synthetics of any kind. It is an organic operation but heavy use of tillage. The other next operation was, uh, uh, they consider themselves zero-tillers, but I'd say minimum till because they run points in front of their drill in order to inject anhydrous, Uh, but very low diversity. Only flax and spring weights the only two crops they grow. Third operation was no-till for 20-plus years, Very, uh, a medium diversity, I would call it, growing corn and sunflowers and barley and soybeans and wheat, but high, high use of synthetics. And then the fourth operation was mine, and these are all in fairly close proximity. And it's amazing to see the results Dr. Haney got from the N, P, and K between those four operations. The other three, there was basically no difference, very minimal difference in nutrients, but mine was literally over four times higher than theirs. And people say, well, how can that be? Because you haven't been adding anything. Well, the fact of the matter is I tell people, well, how did these, how did our prairie ecosystems function for eons of time? It's biology. It's diversity in biology, breaking down those organic nutrients in the rocks, making them available uh, to the plants. And I tell people the other operations have every bit as much nutrients as I have, just that it's unavailable because they don't have the biology. So I've spent a lot of time this past 10 years focused on educating others as to the power of a diverse ecosystem and just how healthy our soils can be.
2: You must have seen something in those first four years when you were having those, those weather you know, issues that were just, you know, destroying your crops and that. As you were, you were trying some different things, you must have been seeing some things happening that gave you some faith to keep going on.
1: Think of what happened in those four years. Okay, 1995, we got hailed out, and that was, that was the day before I was going to start combining spring wheat. Lost 100% of the crop to hail. Well, all that above-ground biomass got pounded down onto the soil surface. So all of a sudden, I was starting to go no-till, I had all that armor or residue on the soil surface. The second year, same thing happens. Now we were starting to diversify a little more into our crop rotation. I was starting at that time, I didn't think of them as cover crops. It was, you know, rye or winter triticale and hairy vetch. After the hailstorms, I was seeding cowpeas and grass species like that because I needed feed. Well, I was adding diversity. All of a sudden then, by 1997, the dry year, I was starting to see earthworms show up. Now, we never, ever saw an earthworm in any of our cropland fields because of all the tillage that had been done. Well, I hadn't disturbed the soil. I had all that armor. The biology was coming back. Then also what I I saw over time was my organic matter levels, because we were still doing soil testing. Now, in saying that, it was just the standard conventional soil test, which in my mind, is pretty much a waste of time because it's not giving you the organic fraction of nutrients. It's only giving you the inorganic fraction. But we were measuring organic matter levels, so we were seeing those tick up. And so I was starting to notice, you know, the soil looked different. We didn't have water ponding at all anymore. It was infiltrating, you know. And that's why I tell people those four years were really the best thing that could have happened to me because it really accelerated my advancement in the health of our soils.
2: There's a, a quote that you had in that original story, and you had said, if I don't fail at something, I'm not trying enough, you think. So when you look back as you went through this whole process, are there a couple things maybe that stand out that you, you did that you, you found failed, other, other than the weather kind of messing with you those original years, but are there some things that you kind of learned that, uh, that have helped you to succeed?
1: Well, one of the things I really learned is the importance of integrating animals back onto the cropland. And if you look at how our prairie soils were formed over eons of time, it was by large herds of animals grazing across. And one of the things I learned early on, I was trying to <laughs> I tell people this, in 1997 after, you know, in that um, No, 1998, excuse me, after that third hailstorm, we had seeded some sorghum sedan grass and cowpeas. And that hailstorm occurred earlier in the year. It was in June. And uh, we got some moisture, so that grew. I literally did not have the money to afford the twine to cut and bale that stuff up. So I winter grazed it with, with cattle. And, boy, that saved me a pile of money. Although that wasn't a failure, it was, it was my first step in integrating livestock onto the cropland, really, during the growing season. Getting back to, you asked about failures, uh, there, there was a number of them we did. I tried, uh, I tried no-tilling corn into a stand of red clover, then terminating the red clover, but red clover has such a tremendous root biomass up near the surface we didn't get good seed soil contact, and I didn't have a very good stand of corn. I've tried probably well over 70 different species of cover crops, and many of those just don't work, you know, in our environment, and so there's lots of failures. One thing I'm working on now that I'm really excited about is this year I grew a, what I call a polyculture cash crop. It was oats, barley, peas, lentils, and flax all together. and they're doing all, they're, there's a group of young producers up in Canada who are doing some amazing work with, with they're growing like flax peas and lentils together, and barley peas and lentils together, and net returns are 20 to 60% higher than monocultures, net returns per per acre, and they're doing some wonderful things with that. And I've been growing, you know, barley peas, barley oats, rye vetch for many years, but after visiting with them a number of years ago, I thought, boy, i got to ratchet up my game a bit. And so we're trying these polyculture cash crops, and I really think in the near future that's going to be the wave of production agriculture because it's a way to get diversity. Now, these, these producers in Canada, they're cleaning those mixes as fast as they combine them. They have the, the grain cleaner set up at their bin site, and they're separating it. I am not separating ours. Ours is going into our hog rations and our poultry rations. So that's what we're using these mixes for. But I really think that's a way for producers to get diversity into their operations.
2: Well, you mentioned the term monoculture, and I think of, you know, Dwayne Beck every time uh, just on the other side of the border in South Dakota from you. Yeah, yep. and he's always been kind of critical about the, the corn soybean rotation. In fact, he'll call that a monoculture, just kind of a, a one crop, almost like a one crop system, not really a crop rotational system. And you, you kind of got into the whole thing about polyculture. Can you talk some more about that term, poly, polyculture, what it means to you and what it looks like?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. As a matter of fact, two weeks ago we were in eastern Iowa and we held a school there, and of course it was predominantly corn bean producers. And it amazes me when I go to travel to places like that. They think they have tremendous soils, but I tell them I would not trade my soils for theirs because their soils are severely degraded. I mean, we saw many pictures of one to two inch rainfall events that could not infiltrate because they've just destroyed their soil structure to the point they can't infiltrate the soils, and then they can't, they've uh, decreased organic matter. You know, their organic matter was easily in the eight plus percent range pre-European settlement, and now it's down to two to three percent. And they're bragging about their soils, but I'm going, no, your soils are severely degraded. We got to focus on that. And we tried explaining to them that you're not going to advance soil health significantly with just a corn-bean rotation. And I think the best example of that is David Branton, in Ohio. David's a corn-bean producer for years, but he added winter wheat to his rotation, and that gave him the window of time then to grow a polyculture cover crop. And now, David, you know, 225-bushel corn with zero, basically zero synthetic inputs. I mean, that's highly profitable. So that's what we try and educate the corn bean producers on. You have to start expanding your rotation and getting diversity in there. And I know a lot of them, a lot of them are adopting the the uh, practice of seeding rye following corn prior to the beans, and that that's a good start. But I tell them, you know, it's just one tiny step. If they truly want to regenerate their soils, they've got to go much more than that. You've got to You've got to get another cash crop in there, and you have to start growing some very diverse uh, cover crops into there. And most of them just are not willing to do that. Well, I'm sorry then. I'm not going to feel sorry for people if they're not willing to make a change. You know, now, now there are producers that are making a change. Uh, take a look at, at Darren Williams, Waverly, Kansas, what he's been able to do in five years Just unbelievable. Basically a corn-bean rotation, but he's added other crops in there, plus cover crops, integrated livestock, and his profitability went through the roof. Look at Russell Hedrick in North Carolina, corn and bean country. Russell started growing diverse covers. Last year, 319-bushel dryland corn on 140 units of nitrogen. I mean, that's unreal. And I was on those fields of Russell's last fall. Very very poor soil. I mean, not even close to what Iowa soils are. So I, I tell the, the the corn soy guys in the Corn Belt, you got to step up your game a bit. You
2: know, <laughs> the polyculture thing with the cover crops. I mean, you're you've done a lot of different mixes. How do how do you determine? How do you figure out what works well together? And are there certain um, cover crops that you've found have worked well together and complemented each other?
1: first thing when we sit down with producers to design a cover crop mix is they have to identify their resource concern. What is it that they're trying to do? You know, Are they trying to improve infiltration? Are they kind of trying to increase organic matter? Do they need more armor on the soil? Do they have salinity issues? What is it they're trying to do? And then we design the mix accordingly based on the time of the year that they can fit the, the cover in. You know, I have combinations on my place here that I call, they're they're slam dunk no-brainers. They're going to work every year. You know, one of them is, uh, I like to seed like my rye, hairy vetch, and then I always add a couple pounds of radish. Obviously, we have very few choices as to what will overwinter here, but then we'll either graze that the next spring or we'll combine it, and then we'll go with a warm season mix, and that'll be uh, primarily made up of brown midrib sorghum sudan grass. We'll have some cowpeas in there, some mung beans, some guar, some buckwheat. Uh, There'll be a a half pound of sunflowers in there. There'll be a forage brassica in there. And we found uh, there's really good uh, uh, data in the literature that shows you want at least six to seven species in a mix. There's there's real synergies and benefits that come about when you have six to seven species in a mix, and then at least two to three functional groups. So in other words, you want the grasses, you want the forbs, you want the legumes. And so we'll, do, we'll design these cover crop mixes accordingly. So we get the diversity, we get the functional groups, and then we address the resource concerns of that particular field and too many producers you know they're only seen cereal rye or only seen in annual ryegrass well yes that's better than nothing but they're not that's not how ecosystems function and all we have to do is think back to native soils native uh, rangeland ecosystems and look at the tremendous amount of diversity that was in those ecosystems we've got to start doing that that's why a straight corn bean rotation is just destined for failure in the sense that you'll never really advance the health of your soils in that system.
2: You know, a lot of farmers, uh, particularly in your environment with the limited amount of moisture you have, you said probably you get around 15 to 16 inches total moisture on average. You know, they would be really, really worried about raising cover crops in the environment. What is going on that you that you found you've been able to do this? I, I know it's got to be a yep. big... A big trust issue or a big faith issue with a lot of guys to make that leap.
1: The thing is one has to become educated in how ecosystems function. There's a great book out there called The Soil Owner's Manual by John Sticka. John Sticka was an NRCS employee for North in North Dakota here for years. He retired, and he wrote this book after he retired, A Soil Owner's Manual. And it's a very easy read but John does a great job of of laying out how soils function and if you understand how soils function the only way you're going to increase the water holding capacity of your soil is by increasing your organic matter obviously you have to have good infiltration you got to infiltrate it into the soil profile but then you have to have the organic matter levels So what I tell people in those situations, if they're really worried about using up their moisture, the only way they're gonna get past that is by improving the organic matter, the water holding capacity of their soils. So that's why I mentioned, you know, we were less than 2%, now we're approaching, uh, uh, you know, well, 7% or that on our cropland soils. Think of what that does. For every 1% organic matter, you'll hold approximately 20,000 more gallons of water per acre. So I had less than 2%. I could only hold, you know, approximately 35,000 gallons of water per acre. Now I'm at 7%. I can hold almost 140,000 gallons of water per acre. That makes me resilient to drought. And I tell producers it's not going to happen overnight. I remember for years I'd grow one of these cover crops and it would only get three, four inches tall. But two-thirds of your organic matter increase approximately will come from roots. So I was building organic matter. And that goes back to what I said during those years of hail and drought. I had all those crops I was growing. I was building organic matter. I wasn't tilling. And so that carbon was there. To increase water holding capacity that's why in 2017 here i could go through this farm could go through very little moisture and i could still uh produce profitable uh yields and and uh, have enough production in my pastures and so once a person understands ecosystem function this all makes sense and then you do what what i, I always ask producers well do you want to be in do you want to farm one year or do you want to farm till you retire? Well, if you if you really want to be in it for the long haul, you better start focusing on on your resource then.
0: We'll rejoin our conversation with Gabe Brown in a moment, but I wanted to take time to once again thank our sponsor, Yetter Manufacturing Company, for supporting our No-Till Farmer Podcast series. With a tradition of providing farmers solutions since 1930, Yetter Manufacturing Company is your answer for tools and equipment to face today's production agriculture demands. From many different designs of planter attachments for the different planting conditions you face to several options of equipment for placing fertilizer and products to meet harvest time challenges, Yetter Manufacturing delivers the return on investment and tools to meet your equipment needs and maximize inputs. Find solutions to your challenges today at yetterco.com, that's Y-E-T-T-E-R-C-O.com. One of the things that impressed me about Gabe's work is what he's been able to produce and support with just 15 inches of annual moisture on average. He's done that by improving both water infiltration and the water holding capacity of his soils, and that has been accomplished by raising his soil organic matter levels. He's done that with having something growing in his soils year-round as much as possible. He doesn't give the soil a rest, per se. Let's get back to our visit with Gabe where he talks about the impact of his management system on weed and insect control, the encouragement he gives farmers to step outside their typical management system, and the five principles he follows for regenerative agriculture.
1: I have fields that have been five years, no herbicide. Our average is about one herbicide pass every two to three years. And the reason we're using herbicide is to control those perennial noxious weeds. Because we all know when you switch into a no-till system long term, your weeds are going to uh, move from annuals to perennials predominantly. And I, I have no issue with annuals, weeds. They're, they're not a problem whatsoever. But the perennials, I can understand why those producers you mentioned um, are concerned about it, but realize that what they're more or less doing is they're putting a Band-Aid on one foot and shooting themselves in the other because they're just moving those restrictive layers to right below where that undercutter is. And and so, yeah, they're trying to, to heal one thing, but what we're finding as you advance soil health and you get the biology, uh, cycling all these micronutrients, weed issues tend to go dramatically down. And they're just not as much of a problem. The other thing I think it's important to to remember and to think about is I really believe the good Lord never intended for all areas to be grain farmed. You know, when you get into these dry areas, like we're consulting on a large operation in eastern uh, Colorado, and what we're recommending there is to move back to more perennial-type systems and to, if nothing else, take, instead of uh, a cash crop, do like what I'm doing. I'm doing what I call years of double-crop cover crops. So I'll seed that Rye vetch combination in the fall, graze it in the spring, then I'll seed a diverse polyculture cover crop, graze that, and we're converting it to dollars with grazing. And I was showing just here when I was in eastern Iowa, I was showing them my economics from doing that. I mean, lots of times we can net net profit well over $300 an acre from doing that, you know, and I'm like, I asked the corn producers there, how many of you made that much on your corn? Net profit, well, nobody even come close, you know. And the reason is we can, then what we're doing, we're cycling carbon, and that's what feeding biology is all about. We've got to, through photosynthesis, pump that liquid carbon into the soil to feed biology. That carbon we're pumping into the soil then fuels a profitable cash crop the next year. And I really think there's going to be a wave of producers going, in these drier environments going to that type of a production model, where you have a year of cash crops followed by a year of cover crops that are grazed. And that's how we're going to build soil health in these drier environments.
2: Tell me why you found that you don't need to use a fungicide, or it sounds like no insecticides either. What what nope. happens that uh, in, in this type of system that allows you to do that
1: what we noticed over time for instance you know sunflower crops seed weevils etc i noticed over time that we just weren't having the levels of pests that we once had and then in 2012 i had the good fortune of meeting dr jonathan lundgren who at that time was working for ars in brookings south dakota and dr lundgren told me gabe for every insect species that's a pest there's up to 1,700 that are beneficial. So here we are as producers, we're spraying to kill that pest, but we're really killing the 1,700 that eat that pest and that are beneficial. So I quit using, that's why I mentioned, you know, 2010, we quit using seed treatment and that, is we had quit insecticide back before the turn of the century. But the reason is if we have, healthy populations of all these predator insects and pollinator insects, it's just a non-issue. So what I've done on my operation, we have areas around the farm that I call my pollinator strips. For instance, under we've planted over 1,500 fruit and nut trees and underneath all those, we have a very diverse mix of native grasses and forbs and flowering species and legumes That's where the pollinators live. That's where all the predators, insects live. Do I have pests? Yes, of course I do, but I need some to feed all these predator insects. So if I ever have an outbreak, then I've got the predator population to take care of them. And I tell people this. In all honesty, I haven't spent five minutes of time in the last 15 years thinking about pests in any of my crops. It's just a non-issue. But when we start thinking of our farm or ranch as an ecosystem and start treating it as such, we need to realize that for everything we do, there's compounding, cascading effects. Things are going to happen. So when we're killing the one pest, we're really killing all the beneficials. Then we're stuck in this vortex, you know, and it's spiraling further and further downward. We've got to get out of that mindset.
2: What type of encouragement and, and how could could you give to a guy out in these dryland areas um, to start and to, and try and get something started with you know cover crop what might that look like that might be a simple way for him to start and and to try and see you know the the kind of benefits that you've seen from making the changes that have gone on in your operation
1: yeah that we that's an often asked question and the first thing we need to find out is if they have livestock because if they have livestock it's a no-brainer because we can graze those cover crops with livestock and convert them to dollars and uh... we're seeing more and more producers bringing livestock back into their operation because of the benefits they provide and so that's where i start with the producers if they have livestock i said okay where do you have a window of time that you, do, that you need forage? In other words, uh, uh, the pastures that you do have aren't providing enough. Okay, let's try and grow a cover crop to fill that nutritional and quantity gap in that window of time. And then uh, we'll graze it with livestock. They'll be advancing soil health and they'll be converting it to dollars with livestock. Now, for those that don't have livestock, then it typically is the fall biennials, and we try and get them to diversify their rotation a bit, plant some fall biennials in there in order to to cycle that carbon, you know, through photosynthesis, and that's what it's all about, and and uh, build soil health that way, and try and find the windows of time where we can. We can diversify. Now, in saying that, of course, and, and your readers are, are pretty advanced, you, you, this is all a mute point if you don't follow those principles of no-till, armor on the soil, diversity, living root, and then preferably uh, uh, livestock and insect integration, you know. So I encourage people to start there and start following those principles. And what I tell producers is pick one field okay just one field whatever makes you feel comfortable uh some people pick five acres behind the hill where nobody will see uh here a few years ago i had a a guy in canada the first year he planted eight thousand acres of covers you know it didn't bother him it just made sense to him and away he went and and um that's quite an amazing story in itself but whatever you feel comfortable with pick a field dedicate five years of using these principles i have never ever had anybody go all five years then go back i've had them drop out after a year or two because they don't have the fortitude to stick with it but once they see the changes it's just amazing Mm
2: -hmm. could you could you just briefly hit each of those principles
1: again for us and maybe just put a sentence or two behind each one of those well the five principles are the first is least amount of mechanical and chemical disturbance possible. So I, I don't only mean tillage, but I mean the use of synthetics and pesticides and fungicides and all of those, because all of those are detrimental to soil biology and to a healthy ecosystem. And so we have to realize that when we're, when we're using these synthetics, that they are detrimental. So least amount of those possible. The second principle is armor on the soil surface. In other words, we never, ever want to see bare soil. And, you know, if you have bare soil, it's prone to wind erosion, water erosion. You're going to get a flush of weeds because nature's going to try and cover it. And your soil temps are going to heat up, and many people don't realize, especially in these drier environments, the, the, the amount of moisture that's lost through evaporation and it also negatively affects soil biology. I've been on many operations, bare soil temps are one hundred and fifty to one hundred and sixty degrees. We're killing biology in the top several inches of the soil profile and that's where the majority of the biology lives. So we gotta keep armor on the surface. Third principle is diversity, and I'm talking about diversity of everything. You know, diversity of, of both crop and cover crop species, diversity of functional groups, you know, your forbs and legumes and grasses, and that that gets back to the corn-bean rotation. Or I was in Canada here, and I had a young producer come up to me, and he said, Gabe, that makes sense. How do I get my father to get more diversity in, your, in our crop rotation? And I asked him, well, what's your crop rotation? He said, it's canola, snow, canola. <laughs> and I, I laughed at that one, you know. But that's the, that's the issue. I was, uh, was on a, a farm in northeastern Colorado, dry land, winter wheat, for over 70 years. Now, think of that soil as basically dead. You know, there, there's very little biology in it because it just doesn't have the diversity. And corn-bean rotations, they, they're just brutal because there isn't enough diversity. Okay, fourth principle is living root in the ground as long as possible. One of the things, and I always challenge every group I speak to, I ask them, how many of your agronomists are talking to you about mycorrhizal fungi? And very few hands grow up, go up. I, I tell them, you need to fire that agronomist and get a different one. Because the only way you're going to build soil aggregates is with mycorrhizal fungi, which secretes glomalin, the sticky substance that that helps soil particles stick together, and biology. So... The only way you're going to do that is to, obviously, reduce tillage and chemicals, but then also mycorrhizal fungi needs that living root in the soil as long as possible throughout the year. You know, we get a lot of visitors to our ranch, and they ask, what's the one thing that separates your operation from your neighbors? And I tell them, plain and simple, I grow things. You know, I mentioned my neighbor who grows malting barley. He's often combining that third week in July then all they do is spray that for the next two months to keep anything from growing. Well, that's foolish. They should be growing a multi-species cover crop, taking CO2 out of the atmosphere through photosynthesis, converting it to liquid carbon, pumping it into their soils. That's how soil ecosystems function. Instead, they want to turn around and write a check for all these inputs. There's no need to do that. So you gotta have a living root in the ground as long as possible. And then the fifth principle, is I call it livestock and insect integration. We have to get grazing animals back out on the landscape where they belong. Because those animals, that's how our, our soils were formed with those grazing animals. When a plant is grazed, it sends a signal, hey, I was injured, I got to pump more carbon down into the soil. That's how we build soil health. So, uh, integrating livestock is is a big part of this, also.
2: If we could just take a couple minutes to talk about fertility a little bit, and how are you getting NP and K? How are you getting perhaps some of the you know the sulfur, the macro like a, like a sulfur?
1: Yep. How about some of the micronutrients? And it's all coming from the natural processes, which is biology. You know, we've all driven through the mountains, and we've seen a tree growing out of a rock. Well, how does that happen? Does that, you know, is there a pocket of soil in the middle of that rock? No. What happens is that, that seed lands on that rock, and then some moisture on it, it germinates. Well, what happens through the process of photosynthesis, you know, part of that carbon is used for plant growth. Part of it is pumped out in the roots where biology consumes it. And then part of that liquid carbon uh, binds with water and forms carbonic acid. And it's that carbonic acid that starts breaking down that parent material, that along with biology. So, you know, I just laugh because people, they just say, oh, Gabe, yeah, you can get nitrogen by planting legumes, but you're going to run out of phosphorus and potassium. I, and then I tell them, okay, explain to me how come our native prairies never ran out of phosphorus and potassium for eons of time. No, it's because of the biology cycling this parent material through. And they said, yeah, but you're going to eventually run out. When? In 5,000 years? You know, it, it's it's just like a good one to interview for that. It'd be Dr. David Johnson out of New Mexico State. Or he is really doing some good groundbreaking work. He's a molecular engineer, and he's he's finding out just how important this biology is and just the power of this biology. And we've lost that in production agriculture. You know, after World War II, we obviously went and started uh, uh, nitrogen fertilizers and that, and we've gotten away from how these natural systems function. And I'm a hundred percent confident—not ninety-nine point nine. I am one hundred percent confident that the availability of my nutrients is only going to keep increasing all the time, simply because of the power of a natural ecosystem. Fact of the matter is, we have to let nature function, you know, and and we can't try and play God with this.
2: Sure. With your, with your uh, going back to your cover cropping a little bit here. Uh, you're doing, obviously, a lot of different things, including growing um, cover crops within the, the cash crop itself. What are yep. the situations where you're doing that, and how are you making that work?
1: Sure. So one of the easy – you know, there's several crops that are easy to do that in. Corn is one of them. We can grow clovers and vetches under the corn canopy. And what I'm doing, because I don't, um, because I don't use post-emergent herbicide – I'm going and planting my corn, and then three to four days later, I'm seeding my cover crops into there, which I don't like because it's two passes, but I'm not going to invest in different equipment to be able to do it in one pass. Another one it works real well on is sunflowers because we can plant our sunflowers in rows and solid seed with the drill, the cover crops underneath. You know, when you have that difference in height, it makes it very easy. Now, a lot of people want to jump into this companion cropping right away. You better have your weeds in check when you're going to do that because, you know, you really, if you're using a diverse companion cover crop, you don't have many options for weed control. So those are two of the common ones. Now, we're also doing things with, for instance, in our, in our oats, we'll always have clover grown under our oats. You know, same with barley, same with wheat. And in those shorter statured cash grain crops, we don't have a tremendous amount of diversity underneath, but at least it's something. So the minute we straight combine off that cash crop, we've got that living root in the ground. and. Way we go. When
2: we, when we look at measurements, you know, part of this is, is measuring your profitability or, or even measuring your cost to produce a crop. And it sounds like you've been really able to take those costs down considerably. What, you know, for some of your crops that you're raising, what, what in general would you say is your cost per acre to raise these crops?
1: Yeah, and I went back and I figured from 2008 through 2016, I haven't had the opportunity to add everything up from 2017 yet, but, like, our average cost to produce, store, and market a bushel of corn was $1.44. So, and that includes land costs, you know, equipment costs, everything. So, you know, here, what, two years ago, corn dropped to 73 locally here. Well, I can still make a few pennies, but, you know, uh, not many people can my average cost to produce a bushel of spring wheat was about $1.92 over that time period. And my cost for peas, I believe, was $2.78. I'm going off the top of my head now, so I might be off a few cents. But that, that's kind of our average cost of production over those nine years. People always tend to get a bit overwhelmed. I show them what I call my cash flow statement with soil, water, sunlight, carbon at the top, then all the different enterprises that we, we run. And there's a lot of them. And they said, my goodness, you must have a lot of hired help. No, we don't. But I tell people, you're looking at that from a quote-unquote conventional type mindset. But look at all the things we don't do. I don't have to go get fertilizer. We do very little spraying. We don't use uh, uh, pesticides. We don't use fungicide. Our livestock, most of our cattle are go through a squeeze chute once their entire life. You know, uh, they're out there, for instance, our winter program, they graze the majority of winter. The calves remain on the cows. We calve in late May and June. They remain on the cows all winter. We fence line wean. They're right out on grass right away. So it's all the things we don't do that allows us the time to do all this, uh, all these enterprises. And I do tell people, one of the things I think is really lacking in agriculture today, and I I always catch some static for saying this, but I believe it's true. I believe we've lost the power of observation and the power to think and make management decisions based on what's happening. And one of the things that really, really helped my operation is when I bowed out of all government programs. We did not take part in any uh, crop insurance no equip contracts no csp contracts now I did at one time but we've since dropped that and that allows me to be very very flexible for instance last spring last spring we could see it was it turned hot and dry really hot and dry and I'm going okay we're going to switch from planting corn acres we're going to put more acres into forages then for example and we put some acres into uh, crops like these polyculture, that mixed polyculture, I said, because they're low water use crops. So if we were tied to a farm program and crop insurance, revenue insurance, we wouldn't be able to make those management decisions. And we can do it in the blink of an eye. You know, I can get up in the morning and decide, hey, I'm going to go a totally different direction here. That has really increased the profitability of this ranch.
0: Thanks again to Gabe Brown for sharing the journey and the practices he's implemented on his Bismarck, North Dakota farm to make it profitable and sustainable for the long term. For those listeners who would like to hear more podcasts about successful strategies for no-tilling, please visit notillfarmer.com backslash podcast. Again, we'd like to recognize and thank our sponsor, Yetter Manufacturing Company, for helping to make this No-Till Farmer podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, feel free to drop me an email at dbrugink, that's d-b-r-u-g-g-i-n-k, at lessetermedia.com. or give me a call at 262-777-2420. And if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or the Google Play Store to get an alert when future episodes are released. You can also keep up on the latest no-till farming news by registering online for our No-Till Insider daily and weekly email updates. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at No-Till Farmer, with farmer spelled F-A-R-M-R, and on our No-Till Farmer Facebook page. For Gabe Brown, Yetter Manufacturing, and our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Executive Editor Daryl Brooking. Thank you for listening.